The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, turning your Bibles to Acts 17. Acts 17 has a, a lot to say about our view of a pagan culture and our compassion for the lost. And when I say pagan culture, I don't just mean the ancient culture of Athens with their pantheon of gods. I mean, I mean the United States and its rejection of God. I mean a culture that has killed millions of babies and cares nothing for truth. Or even truth within, within our idol of sports where our girls are losing their right to compete against girls, losing opportunities and dignity as they're forced to change with and applaud men who either pretend to be women or who need psychological treatment instead of surgical mutilation or sterilization. This is our culture. You might be saying, wow, Pastor Brian, you're getting right to it. We are so pagan, so lost, groping around in the dark, we legalize heroin here in Oregon. We indoctrinate instead of educate. And instead of protecting our children, we prey on them. We subvert the role and relationship of parents to our children. Here in Oregon, by the sixth grade, we'll make sure that they know the various ways they can have sex. We'll encourage, apart from their parents' knowledge... Decisions that will lead to sterilization and cancer, bodily mutilation that leads to deep regret, which leads to a skyrocketing number of suicides. Our paganism, our rejection of the one true God, has led our culture to embrace movements that are cults, false religions of woke. Ideologies that are deeply dividing and destroying our nation. We have gods of sex and identity. Gods that insist upon and even celebrate the sacrificial offerings of our babies. The gods of woke social justice that encourage crime and violence and racism. It's ugly. It's aggravating. I don't need to tell you this if you watch the news at all. It's aggravating. It's confusing. It's concerning. Where we've understandably lost confidence in our government, our media, our schools, and health care. Over the years, I've, I've, you know, we've, we've been a church that where some families will homeschool and some send to private school and some send to public school. And we just say, God bless you. I've, I've appreciated some of you have been able to raise godly kids regardless of where they go to school. But man, things have changed so quickly. More and more, our public schools, they have an agenda to subvert and indoctrinate. And you really ought to consider the dangerous environment that it is, and get your kids out of public school. And if you're a teacher in our public school system, God bless you. We need you there. If there's any hope of turning things around, we need people who, who care about the truth and actually educate children. Keep loving those kids. Stand strong against the pressures that all you must be under. I pray for your discernment and wisdom and that you won't compromise your faith. Even if it means, I've talked to some who were like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep my job and be a Christian in this position. We may not yet have obvious idols, images, Fashioned of gold, silver, or stone, but oh, we have plenty of idols. Idols that our society serves and worships and blindly trusts. So, man, Acts 17 
is not an, an irrelevant history from the first century. No, there's something for us to learn and apply from Paul's encounter in Athens, engaging with a, with a lost culture that, that knows God exists and yet mocks him. And with this in mind, before we read God's word, let's go to him in prayer. God, we come before you because of your mercy to us. Not because we are better than anyone else, but because of your mercy to us sinners. We're concerned and disgusted by the evil around us, and yet it's our culture. It's what we're a part of, where we live, where you've placed us. And so, as a part of this people, we repent. We repent and ask for your mercy. You would use us to proclaim, to show a lost people that what they really crave what alone can satisfy them is you. Let it begin with us. May we know this to be true in our lives. Cause us, Lord, to be so satisfied with you. So satisfied that we're provoked. We're disturbed. We're jealous for those who are made in your image. Jealous for them to worship you instead of the many worthless idols of our day. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Paul. Give us a heart and a hunger like his. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, are you ready? So if you remember, Paul has endured a lot on this second missionary journey. He was imprisoned in Philippi. His preaching in Thessalonica caused a riot and the rioters followed him to Berea where he was forced out of town. And before that, he was expelled from Pisidian Antioch. Threatened with stoning in Iconian, actually stoned and left for dead in Lystra. So when the Jews from Thessalonica, they, they came after him to Berea in order to stir up the crowds, Paul's companions, well, they decided, you know, maybe this would be a good time for Paul to take a cruise. They took him to the coast, put him on a ship going down along the Greek coast for over 250 miles to the great city of Athens. Remember, Paul was a great intellect, highly educated in Tarsus. Going to the, he's going to the intellectual and cultural center of the world. It's an unplanned trip. Maybe, maybe a little like a vacation. Time to rest and regain some strength. Though it's hard to imagine Paul sitting by the beach, sipping out of a little drink with an umbrella or something. I, I don't see that. Concerning Athens, wow, what a city. Concerning Athens, here's what Dr. Derek Thomas writes. He says, that The New Testament city of Athens reached its grandeur during the time of Pericles in what is known as the classical era of the 5th century B.C. Then came Sparta, and the empire was no more. In the 3rd century, Athens was conquered by the kingdom of Macedonia, and in the following century by the Romans, the current rulers in the New Testament era. In Paul's time, the city was renowned for its politics, culture, religion, and philosophy. Its stunning architecture was immediately visible upon entry into the city. The Parthenon temple on the Acropolis remains a stunning sight to this day. 400 years before Paul, Plato had founded the academy in the city. 
He had witnessed the death of Socrates at the hands of the Athenian democracy and taught his most famous pupil, Aristotle. Home then to Plato's Academy and Aristotle's Lyceum, as well as the philosophers Pericles and Sophocles, Athens was also the cradle of Western civilization, the birthplace of democracy, the birthplace of democracy, music, ethics, theater, and medicine. Wow, what a place. What a city. I imagine Paul might have had some appreciation for this as he wandered the streets. By this time, uh, apparently Corinth was the place to live, but Athens was Athens. And culturally, culturally speaking, nothing compared to it. So we imagine Paul... He's there for some days. He went ahead, asked for Silas and Timothy to join him. So he's walking around the famous streets like a tourist, taking in the sights and wonders. And and he's just waiting, waiting for his companions to join him. So let's pick up the story now at verse 16, work our way through. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Okay, let's stop there for now. We're going to work our way through the the rest of the chapter, but let's take it a chunk at a time. Again, Paul first goes to the synagogue. It's this pattern. But the focus here quickly changes, changes to the marketplace, where they misunderstand him, thinking that he's a says it thinking that he's a preacher of foreign divinities. They think he's talking about two gods, one called Jesus and the other Anastasis or resurrection. They're confused. And as he tells them something new, he's he's invited to the Areopagus or Mars Hill where they hear and and make formal decisions about religious matters. He's addressing the the intellectual elite. And some have compared this to inviting him to give a lecture to the faculty at Oxford or Cambridge. A little bit intimidating, I imagine. So there are two major schools of philosophy mentioned here. The Epicureans and the Stoics. R.C. Sproul describes both of these as a skepticism that continues to our day. That people then and now have abandoned the pursuit of higher knowledge and truth and are now concerned only with the here and now. Instead of ultimate truth, they pursue, they pursue whatever happiness could be enjoyed in whatever time that they have. They both sought the same thing, but they, but they came at it from different Angles, different ways. Today we use the word Epicurean in reference to the finest foods and wines. A philosophy that says truth is found through through pleasure, eventually leading to um, to uh, uh, extended amounts of pleasure to hedonism. So, but it's not hedonism. It's it's more sophisticated. Um, you know, they wouldn't um, 
They wouldn't overindulge, or if they did, they'd make themselves throw up. So that they, no, that would be the hedonists. They would just they would just gorge themselves, throw up, and eat some more. The Epicureans, they just found that just right balance of pleasure, not too much, not too little, pleasure and the avoidance of pain. An Epicurean creed would be: if it feels good, well, it is good. So in a very oversimplified definition, the, the Epicureans are, they're relativists. And the Stoics, they're sort of like agnostics who think that, well, if there is, if there are any gods, they wouldn't bother themselves with us. For the Stoics, life or, or stuff just happens. The world is set. And there's nothing we can do to, to change what happens. So, so, well, the focus is just, just try to control your attitude about the things that happen, the things that you can't change. Some, it's fatalistic along those lines. They would say, you know, don't feel bitter. Don't be discouraged or defeated. Just, just learn, to be, learn to be unperturbed, tranquil. Free of passions. Be, be indifferent. Stoicism would say, life is meaningless, but don't let it get you down. This is who Paul is dealing with. Skeptics who say, if it feels good, it is good. Or, there's no purpose in life and you shouldn't care. Sound familiar? Know any people like this? Might there be something that we can learn from Paul, here are a few observations so far. It's, a, it's an unplanned trip, the closest Paul might get to a vacation. And even though he's waiting for Silas and Timothy, he's, he's still engaged. It's a good lesson for us. He's still engaged. He's still purposeful in talking about God. No matter where you go or what season of life it may be, we should, we should all be thinking about the people who are around us. In, in other words, ministry should never stop. We don't retire from following God and being a witness for Him. So we should be asking questions. We should be learning about people's lives. What makes them tick. Because the only thing that can fill the void in their lives truly is God. Luke also tells us that Athens is a city full of idols. Full of idols. It's, it's overgrown with idols. Stott describes it as a veritable forest of idols. It's a city that, that pursues knowledge and wisdom. And, and Paul may have been thinking of Athens when he wrote, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and, and creeping things. God is the answer. And idolatry suppresses that answer. It suppresses the truth. It, it does not honor God or give thanks to Him. It, and it leads to a futile way of thinking. To foolish and darkened hearts. It's what we see in our culture. When we reject God and ignore His commands and become arrogant, we become fools. Fools who, who can't even be honest about basic biology. Even though we're not awash in idols that, that look like these, they still act like these. They still make people into fools who claim to be wise and yet deny the God who, who has clearly revealed himself in creation and providence. So Paul, Paul doesn't take a break from the gospel. And these, these idols, they, we read that they create a reaction with him. Verse 16 says that his spirit was provoked within him. It's the same word describing his sharp disagreement with Barnabas. And once again, we see a, we see a righteous version 
of what's so often just simply sin. He's angry. He's extremely irritated. And it's not, it's not a short-fused temper tantrum, but more of a settled pain and disgust. And it's righteous. It's righteous because it's a deeply, it has this deep jealousy for the name of God. It's the same word that describes God's reaction to his people when they fashioned a golden calf. And this aspect of of jealousy is really important because this, this righteous jealousy, well, it has to do with love. It has to do with a, a deep desire for people to be in relationship with God, the one for whom they're made. And that the images that, that they make, they're, they're only going to lead to their destruction. So it provokes him. And it's important for us to, to get this right because we can, we can err on the side of, of just simple sinful anger and disgust. Pretty easy for us to do today. Sinful because while we're just mad about the idolatry of our culture, that's, we're mad because it's just ruining stuff for us. How it's affecting us and our freedoms and our comforts. It's right to be angry and irritated if, if we're disturbed for the sake of God and His glory and for people and their eternal good. It's right because, well, what's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is provoked because he deeply loves God and he loves these people who are made in his image. Another observation is that before the invitation to Mars Hill, Paul goes to the agora. He goes to the marketplace. And this isn't, this isn't a place where you go and buy produce. It's nothing like we have today. It's the center, it's the center of their media. They didn't have newspapers. They had people who would herald the news. So if you want to know what's going on, you go to the marketplace. It's the gathering place for finance and art and information and government. It's the hub of everything. And it's significant that Paul goes there because he goes there to talk about God. He goes there to talk about God because it says, what this says is Christianity is not meant to be hidden. He goes to the marketplaces. Our faith is not meant to be hidden away in some little subculture where we keep to ourselves, where we're separate from our culture, staying away. Seen away and irritated. Now Paul goes to the marketplace. And we're to be involved as well. That's what this tells us. We should go to the marketplace. We need to be involved. We have the truth that needs to be told. So yes, be a teacher. Yes, be involved in city government and, school, and the school board. And be a voice in the areas of business and government and education and the arts. And if you're there, don't just be angry and irritated. Be jealous about God's glory and what's good for your neighbor. Talk about God. Talk about what's true. You know, when you read through this, this, this little sermon or message that Paul gives that's that's clearly just a summary, it's abbreviated by Luke. I'm sure he said a lot more than what, what we have, but when you just look at that, there's at least there's at least like 17 truths about God in this little speech. So I'd encourage you, go back through that. I'm not going to give you 17 points. Go back through it. Here's a little Bible study for you. Go back through the speech. There's 17 or more truths about God 
said in that speech. List them. Look for them. Meditate on this. Email them to me. I'd like to see what you, what you find out. But take some time. Take some time this week. Go back through it and make this... Get this into your mind. Meditate upon it. Make these things your, your talking points. Last Sunday I said that if you're frustrated and concerned for America, that you should begin by imitating Paul. Paul who considered others more significant than himself. Some of you are, are so gifted. Some of you are called into areas of leadership and government. Some of you have a wonderful voice for truth, and you need to keep talking. You need to keep talking, and I bet you're, it's frustrating, but keep talking regardless of what people say, even if they call you a babbler. Even if they call, that's what they called Paul. They called him a babbler, which is obviously an insult. And what it, what it meant, it's kind of funny, what it meant is seed-picking bird. Seed-picking bird. It's a, an idiom for a person who, who would just kind of gather scraps of information. They're a peddler of second-hand or second-rate uh, religious opinions. Plagiarists. So, go to the marketplace. Don't be surprised. At, don't be surprised when you are called a seed-picking bird. You babbler. You're going to be insulted. And if that's too heavy of a load, remember to at least, we need to all be lifting something. Remember last week I said, you know, don't try to be like these big bodybuilders if, if you can't lift that kind of weight. Some of you can. But we need to start somewhere. We need to be lifting something. To let the mind of Christ be, be evident in your home. With your neighbor, with your coworker, with the people that you bump into. We should be provoked over the forest of idols in America. We should be jealous for God. And certainly resisting today's Epicurean mindset that says, you know, just follow your heart. Do your own truth. If it makes you happy, then it must be right. We should be provoked by hopeless ideas that say, well, if there is a God, he or it doesn't really care about you, so stop caring. Just be indifferent. No wonder there's more and more suicides. Hopelessness. It ought to provoke us, especially since we really do have the answer. And Paul gives us a good example to follow. Let's pick it back up at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, or, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way around toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Because of their idolatry, because they, they know nothing of the scriptures, Paul, Paul lays the groundwork for the gospel by giving them a theology. He gives them a theology of God and of man and of divine judgment. Paul begins with, he begins with God and creation, telling them the truth about God. He begins with the most obvious truth, the one that, that, that surrounds every person and declares God's glory. It's, it's a good place for us to go as well. And even though there are, you know, there are good arguments for the existence of, Paul, uh, of God, it's interesting that Paul, he doesn't, he doesn't begin with giving proofs and arguments. He simply begins with God. He didn't buy into their unbelief and skepticism. He didn't buy into it because he knows that they know God exists. Whether they admit it or not, they know God exists. And the same thing is true today with all people. It's what Paul described to us in Romans 1 saying, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Little thing. It's so natural to say things like, wow, what a beautiful day. Isn't God wonderful? And people know it's true. Even though there are, there are logical proofs for an eternal God in creation, you can simply assert the truth. As Paul did. You can assert it because God has made himself plain to everyone. And deep down they know God is there. And that, as Paul said in verse 27, God is actually not far from each one of us. It's, it's ironic that Paul, Paul here, here's Paul, he's, he's surrounded by, by this forest of idols. All of these false gods. He's surrounded by them. And he looks around and says, well, I can see that you have a lot of gods here, that you're, you're religious. In fact, it seems that you're so religious that even you even thought you'd better cover all the bases with that little idol over there that says to the unknown God. Or maybe you... Epicureans made that one to say, well, maybe there's a God out there somewhere, but we really can't know. We really can't know. Sure you can, Paul says. Sure you can. In fact, in fact, everything surrounding you, all of creation, even the stuff that you use to make these idols was made by my God. Look around you. Look beyond these, these pieces of stone. God made the world and everything in it. It can be incredibly frustrating to debate and argue with people. If you never see me on Facebook, I'm sorry. Maybe I should. I'm just so over it. When was the last time you convinced someone on social media of your side of things. Nobody cares about the truth. They just want to express what they think. 
God bless if you take the time and, and work through the many proofs and evidences for God. They're there. They're, there are wonderful evidences. And I'm not saying that, that that's a waste of time. But, you know, many of you, you don't know these arguments. And debating is not your thing. But there's good news. There's good news here. God gives you a little secret about your opponent or the people that you're provoked to love. God gives you a little secret about these people who, who say there's no God. Here's, here's the secret. They're not being honest. They're not being honest. They already know. Even if they say they don't believe there's a God... They do. They do. Sure they do. God, God's already done the work to make himself known. During the French Revolution, it was said by one of the spokesmen of the Enlightenment, we will pull down your steeples. We will pull down your steeples so that you will not be reminded of your superstitions. To which the Christians replied, yes but you will not be able to rip the stars out of space. The lesson we learn from Paul is that creation is a great starting point to communicate the truth about God. C.S. Lewis wrote, No philosophical theory which I have yet come across is a radical improvement on the words of Genesis that in the beginning God made heaven and earth. The revelation of God, it's all around us. But the real challenge has to do with the willful idolatry of man. So Paul gives us some truth about man as well here. Even though they mock him, Paul knows that they know that God exists. Paul knows that they know that God exists. But the problem is... God can be known and not known at the same time. His general revelation is not only given and received, but it's rejected. People know more than they'll admit. And they'll say to the world around them and to themselves, there's no God. Even when God is saying to them, here I am. Once again, Romans 1 tells us the truth about man. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul is provoked. He's outraged. He's he's lovingly, jealously concerned because, because God is near. He's obvious. And one truth about man is, well, we're created beings. We're creatures. We're created beings and a part of our design, our makeup... Our flourishing has to do with the fact that we are made to honor God, to glorify Him. Not not just Christians. It's what it means to be made in the image of God. We are made to honor Him, to glorify Him, to give thanks to our loving Creator, to worship Him with our lives. We were made for God. And even though sin broke us, making us rebellious toward him, it didn't change that reality about man. It didn't change that reality that only God can satisfy people. The truth about man is that we're, by nature, worshipers. And so if we reject God then the only thing left to do is to try and fill that void with a God of our own making. And it's pathetic. It ought to provoke us with a 
with a great concern when we, when we see the idols of our culture. When the people of our day, they claim to be wise and yet become fools. We can't help but worship something. So if people sinfully reject God, they'll fill it with something else. They'll be Epicureans and fill it with food and drink and, and the pleasures of life. But these things are never enough. Never enough. It's the nature of addiction, right? Seeking some pleasure. And then more and then more and then more because there's never a satisfaction there. They're never enough. We're never satisfied. The lottery winners, what do you hear about? Oh, it ruined my life, they say. They all say they're miserable. And we should never be surprised when the rich and famous keep filling themselves to the point of misery and self-destructive behaviors. It's not where satisfaction is found. People can't help but be worshipers. That's what that is. It's worship because we're made for God. And as Blaise Pascal said, there's a God-shaped void within each of us. And we're going to fill it with something. Either true knowledge or perverted knowledge. It's what idolatry is. In Athens, the idols were made of, of gold, silver, or stone, formed by the imaginations of man. And in America, well, they're just probably made in China. Uh, but what every idol shares is the lie. The lie of satisfaction. I can satisfy you. It began with a piece of fruit in the garden. And it's anything or anyone that, even good things, anything or anyone, spouse, kids, family, anything or anyone that you think will satisfy you apart from or above and beyond God. Calvin said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The truth about man is that we're creatures who are made for our creator. And so we're worshipers who are dependent upon him. In Athens, they're worshiping some unknown God, and Paul and we have the answer as we point them to the God who made everything. When Paul says, when Paul says, let me proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, keep in mind that he's, he's saying this to a polytheistic culture. And what he's really getting at is there's only one God. You're surrounded by all of these gods, but there's only one God. Your gods aren't real, is what he's saying. If God made the world and everything in it, if he's the Lord of heaven and earth, then what does that say about your gods? Your gods that are creations of creatures. Creations of creatures and live in temples made by us. And who depend upon and need us. Those are pretty pathetic gods. Creatures. Creatures are dependent upon a creator. And your gods are actually dependent upon the creatures made by the creator. But the one true God is, is eternally self-sufficient. We don't serve him. We can't give him anything that he needs. The creator of all, the source of all life and breath and everything that exists. That's who he is. And what the truth about God and the truth about man lead to is the truth about religion and judgment. Far from satisfying you or saving you, Paul says that the truth about religion is that it will only damn you. Paul is being very exclusive here. 
Because the truth about other religions is that they're all counterfeits. They're all false gods. A forest of idols. It's not a step closer to God. They're a step away from God. A step against God. And eventually, God is right to judge. Because man's religions are his greatest crimes. But in his mercy... In His mercy, He provided for our salvation. There's there's only one path. There's only one way. Jesus said it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. It's exclusive. And, And the proof of Paul's exclusive claim is that only Jesus, only Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's the resurrection. That they mocked. They didn't have a category for it. They're Gnostic. They're Platonists. They're thinking, the last thing we want is this physical body. We're trying to escape it. So resurrection was weird for them. But for Jesus, it's the evidence that he, he is God's man. He is the Savior. He's God's man who will judge the living and the dead as we recite in the Apostles' Creed. The assurance God gives is that only Jesus has been raised, showing that He alone is appointed to save and to judge. The truth is, oh, God has been so patient, patient with times of ignorance. He's overlooked the sins of the past. But he can't overlook them to the point of never dealing with them. No, no, a just judge, a good judge, and certainly a perfect and holy judge can't simply sweep the sins under the carpet and ignore them. He wouldn't be a good, holy, and just judge to do so. So in order to be just, in order to be both just and the justifier who forgives... God sent His Son. God the Son was... He's he's so near that He took on flesh and dwelt among us, paying the penalty for our sins on the cross. No crime goes unpunished. God sees and knows everything. It's either... That punishment is either on the sinner or on Jesus. People are either dealt with justly or justly forgiven because they look in faith to Jesus. And it comes to a point where God isn't simply, He's not simply wooing and inviting us. No, it's a command. It's a command to all people everywhere to repent. Repent. Change your mind about God. Repent of all other religions, all of your idols. Turn from your worthless idols and trust in the one and only Savior that God has given. And everyone, when Paul says this, everyone drops to their knees and repents and thanks him for telling them the truth. No, oh, no. How did the Athenians respond? Well, three basic responses we see. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the (laughs) Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris. And others with them. Even Paul. It's funny. Some people look at this and think, well, Paul did it wrong. He was comp- No. No, even Paul, with his great intellect, even Paul couldn't convince them. People say that this was the greatest philosophical academy the world has ever known, and that 
Now, maybe even Paul was out of his league here. Maybe even Paul was inadequate for this task. But even if he seemed like a seed-picking bird to them, a babbler, he was faithful. He was faithful. It reminds us that it's not the power of an argument that wins people to Christ. It's the power of the Holy Spirit to take out a heart of stone and to give someone a heart of flesh, a heart that turns from worthless idols and trusts in the only Savior. And God, God amazingly... God amazingly does this through us. I've heard of people coming to Christ over some really bad arguments. Or some really bad uh, prophetic fiction. People come to... God can use a lot of things. He can use us. We need to be faithful in telling the truth about who He is. He amazingly does this through us, and sometimes sometimes he'll even use bad arguments or our stumbling words to do it. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be faithful, and we should be concerned for our country, provoked, irritated, and lovingly concerned enough to tell people the truth about God the truth about humanity, the truth about world religions and God's coming judgment. And like Paul, we'll probably be mocked. We'll hear things like the famous atheist Richard Dawkins who said, that belief in in God is an utterly irrational belief, a bit like believing in a teapot orbiting the sun. You seed-picking bird. Or... That it's, it's absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane. It's the kind of things that we'll hear, we should expect to hear. Some will mock, but others might say, you know, let me think about that. I'd like to hear some more. It may be a seed that you plant, and others might water it, and another might... Reap the harvest. Keep praying. Because some will believe. Even though it was just a few in Athens, well, it was the start of a new church. So if you're concerned for our country, yes, be involved. Have a voice. Speak the truth. And know that the only truth that that really is going to have a lasting effect for eternity, that will truly change our culture, is the truth of the gospel. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save. It transforms hearts and minds. So don't don't lose confidence in that. Speak the truth. Let's pray. Father, it's true. It's true that you are the source of life, that you are the one who continues to provide life, that that we live and move and have our being in you. Lord, help us to have a, a right kind of irritation here, to not simply feed ourselves with information that, that makes us angry and distant from people that we disagree with but to have hearts that are, that are broken and sad for those who are image bearers, made, made for you, for those who are lost, blind, groping around in the dark, trying to find what only you can satisfy in them. So Lord, give us the courage to endure what we suspect will lead to being mocked. Help us to love you with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind, and to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. May we be provoked, provoked to the point of love, speaking the truth with grace, praying for you to open the eyes of the blind so that they might see Jesus. Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.